This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there, this is the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brat. Raising children in today's always plugged in and texting and Snapchat world can be challenging as the need to be always in the know can seem overwhelming for a lot of parents. Today, children of all ages experience near-constant exposure to online activities, whether in school or at home, and that makes it difficult for parents to keep up with the content their children are exposed to, some of which they may not be prepared to handle. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an expert in sex education about one specific thing, how our kids are interacting with other people online and how exposure to online sexuality can affect them. And the overarching focus is going to be on how we can talk to our kids or engage them in conversations about sex and sexuality online in particular. Now, I should warn you, we're going to be getting to some perhaps uncomfortable topics, such as how our own issues with sex and sexuality influence the way we either do or do not talk to our own kids about those same topics. We're also going to be talking about pornography and whether it's always a bad thing and how we can tell whether our child actually is developing a problem with it or has other problematic online sexual behaviors. We'll jump into how we can have conversations with our kids about sex and sexuality in a digital and social media crazed age when Positive Parenting continues right after this. I'm in almost every school bus in classroom. You see me around the neighborhood and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me. We are Feeding America, brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jennifer Weeks, who is the author of How to Talk to Your Teen About Cybersex and Pornography in the Digital Age. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, One thing I want to ask you right away, I was very intrigued by this. You take a a bit of a different tack than some people. Uh, Talking about pornography, I think you, you hear about pornography, and everybody says, oh, that's a terrible thing, and it needs to be stopped immediately, and they just sets people down a whole path of, of, of I don't know, fighting the whole thing or, or disgust with it all. And you mentioned, essentially, that the pornography is not always a bad thing. Talk about that. Absolutely. And I do believe I take a different um, stance on this than maybe some of my colleagues do. And I think it comes really from a more realistic stance in that no matter what our perhaps religious beliefs or philosophical beliefs or personal beliefs are about pornography, it's something that's here and that uh, children and adults are looking at. So for me, from a prevention perspective, it doesn't make sense to talk a whole lot about, you know, the demon downfalls of pornography that some people will talk about. The other end of that is that it's a healthy, great thing, you know, your two polar perspectives around pornography. For me, it just made more sense to talk about the fact that it's here. It's real. It's something that teens look at, that adults look at, and let's talk about it. Um, and not sort of hide behind it or, or deny it, if that makes sense. But can you, it's something. Oh, go ahead. 
No, I was saying, can you give us a definition other than you know it when you see it? <laughs> that um, is also a, a great question in terms of what is pornography. So when we think of pornography, you know, we'll think of, you know, necessarily like perhaps an actual pornographic video, which would be, you know, two people engaging in sex acts or simulated sex acts. Um, whether that's a video, whether that's a GIF, whether that's an image, any of the new ways that we can get uh, imagery. Um, so that would be sort of what I would call quote-unquote technical pornography is actual imagery of people engaging in sex acts. But I think when we're talking about this as um, digital sexuality, it can be so much more than actually just pornography, that any image can be sexualized, that there's a lot of sexualized imagery out there that's not necessarily sex acts. So when you talk about sexting, as an example, you know, very frequently what both teens and adults are sending are not pornographic images and that they're not images of sex acts, they're not images of simulated sex acts, they're nudity, um, you know, or, or content that is still sexual in nature. So pornography can actually be really broad. And you would consider that to be pornography anyway? I wouldn't. I don't consider it to be pornography. I consider it to be sexualized imagery. Okay. Um, you know, I don't. I guess in the clinical work that I do, I don't tend to get hung up on the definition of of what it is in terms of is this pornography or is this not pornography, but more look at things as you know what's the purpose of what a person is looking at the imagery for. Um, you know, I do a lot of work with sex addicts. That's my specialty. And they can look at an image that is not sexual in nature at all, and if they're looking at that for arousal purposes, then that's a sexualized image for them, even if it's not something that would meet that you know, Supreme Court definition of I know it when I see it. Right. So well, arousal is all very personal. Okay, so let's, let's take a different approach then to this whole thing. So sure. when is it a problem, and how, do you, how, say, how can you tell if it's a problem? Absolutely, and I think... This is where um, either parents' stuff may get in the way or just general societal views on this is, is um, depending on your philosophy. For some people, any viewing of pornography is problematic. For some people, none is. I take this from a clinical perspective so that we look at um, is it causing problems. So for if we take teens in particular, what the data shows us is that a lot of teens do sometimes look at pornography online and it's not causing any kind of clinical problems. And by that, I mean, you know, it's not causing any impairment to school function or grades or social interactions with others. Um, it's sort of, you know, something that maybe a teen will look at every now and then, but doesn't cause any impairment in any of their other realms of activity, social life, family life, grades. When we look at clinically problematic behavior, it tends to have an effect on some of those areas of life. So this is not, if someone's having a problem with pornography, they're not just looking at it every now and then. This is usually a person who's looking at it very frequently, um, you know, whether that's every day, a couple hours a day, um, sometimes more often than that, and it's causing problems. So perhaps instead of doing homework, they're sitting online looking at pornography, so it's getting in the way of grades. Instead of, you know, going out with friends, they're online, you know, chatting, sex chatting, or looking at pornography, things like that. So in, in my view of things, which is this clinical perspective, is that it's problematic when it's impairing function or other avenues of life. Now, one thing you haven't touched on is something that comes up, I guess it's more of a political discussion, 
about what that does for relationships with other people, whether you tend to see, whether you're a tend to see your partner in a, in a much more sexualized way, whether that's a, a girl looking at boys and expecting certain size issues or a boy looking at girls and expecting certain kinds of behavior. Um, what, how, how does that play into it? Because that's going to be a little bit harder to, to diagnose whether that's having an effect on your school or your, your personal life. Absolutely, and that is one of the things that, that we do talk about when we're talking about pornography use, particularly with teens or developing young minds, is that um, what the research does show us and we know is that frequent use of pornography can absolutely skew um, what the person who's watching it feels is quote-unquote normal sexuality. So, um, you know, what sex acts they see, frequent use of pornography tend to try to engage in. There is data that shows us that the more frequently um, a person, particularly teens, this data has been done in adolescence, watch pornography, the more likely they are to objectify men and women, um, both genders, the more likely they are to look at their partner as a sex object. Um, and another thing that absolutely plays into this is that frequent users of pornography aren't absolutely comparing themselves to the people in the videos or in the imagery. So there can be performance anxiety issues, body image issues, um, you know, there's a sense of you know, what happens in pornography isn't really reality in terms of what happens relationally in sex between people. Um, so if that is my measure of what a sexual relationship is, most people are going to be left wanting because reality never equals fantasy. Um, so it does skew how a person views sex and sexuality. Now, what are the legal ramifications here of kids engaging in sexual behavior of some kind, whether it's pornography the way that, you know, clinically would be defined or sexting or whatever, how, how does that all play into the legal system? It's, or does that it? is something absolutely that plays into it. It's going to depend state by state because every state has different laws around um, possession of child pornography for minors as well as sexting. Some states have no laws. Some states have good laws. Some states' laws are um, really harsh on the children. But what happens is if you are, if we look at pornography first and then sexting, if you're a 15-year-old boy who's online looking at pornography and you're looking at 15-year-old girls online, that's illegal behavior, right? Because you are looking at sexualized imagery of children. This is child pornography. Biologically, it's normal for a 15-year-old heterosexual boy to be attracted to a 15-year-old girl. Um, but if you're looking at that imagery, it is absolutely illegal imagery. Minors that get caught with that imagery absolutely are breaking the law. And again, depending on what state you're in, can be um, adjudicated as sex offenders and have to register on um, the state sex offender registry, sometimes until they're 18, sometimes for the rest of their lives. So it's a big issue and it's a life-altering and not in a good way issue if these teens get caught with these images. When it comes to sexting, that gets more complicated, and again, some states have laws and some don't. But if I'm a you know 14-year-old girl and I take a, a naked, sexy picture of myself and I send it to my boyfriend, I have now just produced and distributed child pornography, and right, he, so if once he opens it, he possesses it. So she doesn't have a problem, but he does. I mean, is she well, is she have a problem because she's disseminating uh, you know child pornography? <laughs> Which is they a, both may, again, depending upon the state. 
right? And there's some places where she would then be the producer of child pornography, the distributor of child pornography, right. as well as the victim of child pornography. So it gets very complicated. So some states don't differentiate between this. Some states do. Um, the other piece that comes in with sexting and legalities is consensual versus non-consensual. So some states will have uh, laws that are much less uh, punitive if, you know, this is a consensual boyfriend, girlfriend who are minors sending these images, and then much more punitive if it's a non-consensual. So let's say I'm right. that 14-year-old girl, I sent the image, we break up, he sends it to all of his friends, we're now in non-consensual area right. because I didn't consent to that, and again, that can have legal ramifications as well. Jennifer Weeks is the author of How to Talk to Your Teen About Cybersex and Pornography in the Digital Age. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jennifer. It's Practical Poly Radio. I've switched to cooking with healthier oils. So now what do I do with all these tubs of lard? Skinny jeans feeling too tight? A bit of lard on your hips and thighs, and those pants slide on like a dream. So there's no need for that lard to go to waste. But get your best heart-healthy trade-up with healthier oils, like canola, olive, or other vegetable oils, which can actually lower your chances for heart disease. Learn more at heart.org slash face the fats. Canola Info is the national supporter of the American Heart Association's Face the Fats campaign. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Brott, and we're talking with Jennifer Weeks, who's the author of How to Talk to Your Teen About Cybersex and Pornography in the Digital Age. So let's move into the the topic of the book, I mean, the subtitle of the book about talking to your kids. How do you even begin to bring this stuff up? Because I can't imagine, or I know this for a fact, you can't sit down and talk to a kid and say, hey, look, well, let's talk about the legal ramifications of what you're doing. Um, right. You know, how do you even begin to bring this up in, in a way that will actually engage them and will not make them roll their eyes and storm out of the room? Well, I, I don't know that there's any way necessarily to talk to them that won't, won't make them roll their eyes, but we can try. That's true, yeah. <laughs> um, I think really for me that the talking to a child about all of this is not a one-and-done event, and I think a lot of parents, because of their own embarrassment, would prefer it be that. But it's an ongoing conversation. Um, the first thing I, I do when we talk to parents is help them get educated. So before I'm even asking my teen or talking to my teen about, you know, the images they're taking or are their friends, is to find out what they're doing online. What apps are they on? Are they on Twitter? Are they on Instagram? Are they on Snapchat? You know, get some data about what their teens are doing. Um, you know, and then to talk to them about what kind of things that they engage in on those social media outlets. Um, you know, just to be interested, what what we learn, particularly a little older parents who are digital immigrants and not digital natives, is that we don't really know what's going on, you know, in that digital world, and that's where the kids are living their lives. So I always say get some data first. Um, I, I think a good talking point a lot of times for parents who are really uncomfortable are news stories. Um, you know, I, I get the Google alerts for news stories, and you see it in the newspapers all the time that, you know, a sexting scandal in this high school or this, you know, these, you know, sexting issues going on, particularly for sexting, it's a good way to sort of bring it up in a non, hey, what are you doing kind of way. But I saw this in the news the other day. What, you know, is this stuff that goes on in your school? Do any of your friends ever talk, you know, talk about this or do this? And just bring it into daily conversation. Um, I think when we're talking about pornography, that has to be, a, again, a multifaceted um, 
conversation not just about, you know, hey, this is pornography, you're going to experience this online, but also then incorporating what the family's values and beliefs are about pornography into those conversations. Well, that's an interesting thing because you, we've talked a little bit about how it's not just a black and white, it's good versus evil kind of thing with pornography. Right. And you, know, you have this issue where the digital natives, the digital immigrants, whatever you want to call the various people, they're doing stuff that we have no idea about. And there's a very good chance that they're doing stuff that we have no idea, that we'd never be able to find out. So Correct. you need to be establishing trust so that they'll even have this conversation instead of just saying, just lying about it. So how do you, as a parent, encourage the conversation, which would be better than just shutting it off? And even if you could shut it off, they're going to go get it somewhere else. And they are absolutely going to be able to have access to it um, somewhere else. And I think some of that just comes with discussing Rules of engagement for digital technology in the household. Um, you know, a lot of times we'll encourage, um, you know, sort of family contracts or family rules about technology, and that those are rules that the parents would follow as well as the kids. And so, you know, that's anything is from as simple to no one looks at their, you know, phone or any technology while we're sitting down at the dinner table to what is the plan if the child comes across um, something online that they're uncomfortable with, that they don't know what to do with, they come across pornography. Um, you know, so laying it out when the child is pretty young, you know, about what are our rules of engagement online and, and how do we deal with that. And in that comes sort of the promise from the parent that if the child comes to them and says, hey, I was, you know, Googling this topic for homework assignment and I saw this site, because we know these sites just kind of pop up, the parent's not going to freak out. Um, you know, so I always encourage parents to start these conversations very early. What we know is that the average age of uh, first exposure to online pornography is about between a 10 and 11 years old. Um, so the minute you've got a child with some digital technology in their hands, we need to be having conversations about safety online. And some of that is absolutely conversations about pictures of, of sexual imagery online. Well, let's talk about the safety aspect. So, I mean, this, in many ways, the conversation hasn't changed all that much. Um, no. Be, be responsible. Don't go off and give out lots of personal details. Um, you know, how do you get that through? Because, you know, somebody's going to say, well, I, I'm sort of thinking further ahead because I think one of the things that the kids are not getting is this, the, the understanding that you put something out there and it's forever. And it never goes away, correct? Yeah, I mean, you can... There, I just remember hearing this thing just a couple of days ago on the radio. It was a woman in Italy who committed suicide. Yeah. Uh, she had just... She, even though she went to Google on you know, in the courts and was able to... I think they called it the right-to-be-forgotten law. Um, in Europe, Which correct. Right, which sounds like you'd be able to take care of it, but no. I mean, that may get it off of Google, but it's not getting it off of all the other websites or all the other people's hard drives where they stored something. And, and I think this is where the repeated conversations come in, and, and there's also the struggle of, you know, impulsive, headstrong teenagers particularly. What, what the research shows us is that um, the kids today are actually pretty conscious about um, safety, you know, in terms of not giving out information, um, you know, personal information on Facebook or Instagram or, or um, services like that that they use. Um, the, the struggle is that they've grown up in this sort of reality show age where everybody puts their entire life out in, in the social realm. Um, you know, and I think this just becomes repeated, again, repeated conversations. We, 
whether we can make them listen or not, we do our best to try and to educate and to really talk about what the ramifications are of those images down the road. You know, a 14-year-old is not going to be thinking about whether or not this image that she snapped on Snapchat that someone then screenshotted and put out to the world is going to have an effect on her college application, but that's sort of the parent's responsibility to bring that up and say, okay, this is what people are doing when they're doing college applications or they're looking for a job is that, you know, as much as they look at, you know, your resume or all these other things, oh, yeah. they're also doing a Google search. What comes up when I do a Google search of your name? And so that becomes sort of like our digital resume that goes along with us throughout life. So how do we know as parents if our child is having a problem? Because they're not going to tell us. They're, well, they're not going to tell you, and I think some of that um, is transparency as well. So a lot of times people will filter either computers, which I think is a great thing for younger children, um, but just like anything else. Uh, where there's a will, there's a way, and if you want to look at something online, you'll figure out a way to do it. Um, but for me, it comes with, with, we advocate transparency, so that as, say, a child gets older, um, maybe I'm not going to filter, maybe I'm not going to put an app on there that watches everything that you do, but we have a transparency policy, which means at any moment, um, you know, I can say, hey, can I check out your phone? And there's that transparency that I can see the images and the text messages and things like that. So the child still has some right to privacy, but some accountability. Um, and I think the struggle with parenting in a digital age is that at some level you're just not going to know because, you know, you can have that transparency and then there's going to be apps out there that hide things from your parents. I mean, there's apps out there specifically oh, yeah. that will hide your other apps. Um, you know, so for me, part of that is, is parents getting some education on tech as well. Like, what actually is out there? Um, you know, because, yeah, you can look at your phone, and if you see, I forget what one of them was, this music app or calculator app or something that was out there, and, and if you don't have that awareness, you're not paying attention, you'll just say, oh, that's whatever the face value of the app is, not realizing that it's maybe one of these apps that hide. And where do you find that out? Um, so I have two, well, I have three really great sources for that. Um, honestly... I get a lot of this data from the Wall Street Journal because what you know the digital world is a lot about finance, so that's where you see a lot of new apps coming up. Um, I love the TechCrunch blog, which always has new information about the latest apps. Um, and your best source is you know other teenagers. That's honestly our best source. Um, you know we know what we know until it's outdated, which sometimes is pretty quickly. Um, you know, and when we have kids that we have in treatment or that we talk to, we'll always ask them, what are you doing? What are you doing online? You know, like, what's the latest thing? You know, I'm the old, I'm the old person here. Kind of educate me and let me know. Um, and, and they'll frequently do that. Obviously, we're not their parents, so maybe they're a little freer. Right, they'll be us. more likely to tell you than me. Absolutely. So that's, it's really, but it's about asking questions. And, and what a lot of the data talks about when it looks at digital parenting is that um, you have to make tech an integral piece of, of the family life. So it's not just that they have it, but that you're talking about it. You know, you're saying, hey, you know, hey, what new apps are you on or what new games? And talk about that tech becomes a part of the daily conversation and the daily language so that, you know, you can talk about, oh, hey, I saw this new app. You know, are your friends using it or is that something that's cool or mm -hmm. whatever language we can kind of put in there. But to have that awareness and to talk about the tech the kids actually want to talk about things that are important to them. 
I think instead of us being like, oh, all these kids, all they do is they spend all their time on their phones and, you know, they don't interact, we can have our feelings about that. But if we want to create connection with them, we kind of have to meet them where they are, yeah. which is tell me about what you're doing. What's going on? What's the new cool thing? Jennifer Weeks is the author of How to Talk to Your Teen About Cyber Sex and Pornography in the Digital Age. Jen, thanks very much. Thank you. Dear Mom and Dad, well, the Army has finally seen fit to give me some time off, so I'm writing to tell you that I'm doing fine over here. And Mom, since you asked, if anyone wants to help, just tell them to contact the USO. You can't believe how much they do for us. With love, your son Michael. The USO depends on the generosity of the American people. To find out how you can help, visit us at USO.org. The USO, until everyone comes home. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brunt, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. You know, one of our biggest challenges here at Parents at Play is to find games that tweens and teens will not only be willing to play with their family, but that they'll actually want to play and that don't involve cell phones or anything else with a screen. Here are a few that we're confident will soon be on your family's list of game night hits. Disgusting Anatomy Brain from Scientific Explorer. This kit is part chemistry experiment, part anatomy lesson, part art project, and all disgusting. It starts innocuously enough in the kitchen where you cook up some gooey gelatin and pour it into a mold to create a slimy, life-size model of a human brain. While you're waiting for it to set, read the booklet and find out the basics of brain anatomy and function. And since your eyes use 65% of the brain's pathways, that's a fact that we picked up from that booklet, there's also a mold for a monster-sized eyeball, which along with the brain you can paint as revoltingly as you'd like. A fun, engaging educational project to do with your kids. It's for ages 9 and up. You can find out more at alexbrands.com. Really bad art from Gather Round. The premise is pretty simple. Each player takes a card that has a short phrase on it and, without showing the card to the other players, draws his or her best interpretation. Gather all the cards face down, add one more, mix them up so no one knows whose is whose, and then match the cards with the illustrations. Oh, oh, sorry, forgot to mention that you have only six seconds to read the card and draw. It's a clever, fast-paced, and really fun game that'll keep everyone laughing and wanting to play it again and again. For three to six players, ages 12 and up, from wonderforge.com. Stick Stack from Gather Round. All you have to do is pull a multicolored stick from a bag and using one hand place it on top of another stick, being sure that they overlap on a matching color. Easy peasy. Well, except for the part where all those sticks are balanced on a small cup. It's attached to a vertical post. Oh, and that post has a spring at the bottom, which makes it wiggle and wobble all over the place. If sticks fall off on your turn, you keep them in front of you. And on your next turn, you can play one from that pile or draw from the bag. The game goes on until the bag is empty and at least one player is out of sticks. It's for two or more, ages eight and up, and you can find out more at wonderforge.com. Suspicion from Gather Round. You've been invited to the A-list masquerade party at a famous art collector's villa. 
Poor guy has no idea that you're a jewel thief and that your plan is to wander around the mansion stealing gems. Uh, unfortunately for the collector, quite a few of the other guests have the same idea. The object of the game is to figure out the identities of your fellow players before they figure out who you are. You do that with deductive reasoning, which simply means that you're using clues, some of which come from dice rolls and cards, which allow you to move your character or someone else's, logic, strategy, and possibly some guessing to expose your opponents. If you like Clue, or even if you've never even heard of the game Clue, you'll love Suspicion, and you'll have a great brain-teasing time playing it. It's for two to six players ages 10 and up. More info is at wonderforge.com. For more reviews of toys and games that you can do with your kids and that you'll love doing with your kids, check out our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another Parents at Play segment or an Ask Mr. Dad segment. But wait, as you know, there's a lot more positive parenting coming right up, so stay right where you are. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. The forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Plant puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. This is the second half of the show. There is not a whole lot of consensus out there about how to parent in the digital age, and it's hard to talk about this stuff without feeling judged. And part of the issue is a phrase, digital natives. Now, that was a phrase that was coined in about 2001 by a guy named Mark Prensky, who was a guest on this show a while back, and he describes it like this. Digital natives are people who are used to receiving information really fast. They like to parallel process and multitask. They prefer their graphics before their text rather than the opposite. They thrive on instant gratification and frequent rewards, and they prefer games to what some would call serious work. Now, some people don't like the phrase digital natives, especially because it's often paired with digital immigrants, which refers to people who grew up without all of these tech tools out there. And a number of researchers have begun to point out that digital natives could also be called digital naives, who may be clueless about the quality of the information they're consuming or the ways that their own data is being mined. And that brings us to the topic of this part of today's show, which is how we as parents can apply the wisdom that we have gained throughout our lives to a world that we may not be quite as familiar with as our kids. 
Nevertheless, our experience is relevant and urgently needed to supplement our kids' digital savvy. The Mysteries of Parenting Digital Natives, coming right up. Green light. Hey, girl. School zone. I'm getting hungry. Car changing lanes. You want to meet me for pizza? Stop sign. Intersection clear. Yeah, street. Pizza sounds good. Ball in street? Girl in street! (gasps) It's hard to concentrate on two things at once, like texting and driving. Stop the text. Stop the wrecks. How will you stop texting and driving? Tell us at stoptextstoprex.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Devorah Heitner, who is the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Devorah, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. So let's talk about what's going on with kids. I mean, I think that it's getting to be sort of a a yawner at this point. Oh, kids and their screens, and they've got everything, and they've got the tablets and the phones, and we don't know what they're doing, and blah, blah, blah. But what, what's really happening out there, and how, how are these kids different than we were? Well, a lot of parents think about screens in opposition to real life, but this is how they're negotiating their real life. And it's not that they're not having face-to-face with friends, but they are navigating a lot of their social lives with peers and, and even people they don't know in terms of reputation via their phones, via games. And so I think it's artificial for us to think of this as like something different and that, you know, from, from their real lives, we have to think about screens are their lives <laughs> you know, in many ways. And, and just like we navigate a lot of our lives from our smartphones, once they have a smartphone, they're going to do the same thing. Yeah, and it's one of these things where, uh, you know, there still are people, it surprises me, getting as many books as I get about parenting here at the show, that there are people who are still insisting that we need to go back. And I keep thinking, that's just not going to happen. We have to figure out how to move forward, or at least stay where we are, in a in a way that works for everybody. But going back is just not going to happen. I agree with that. I think we, we do want to look at balance, and there are times where, if something is negative, you know, if we replace our paper calendar with a calendar on our phone and we start missing appointments, maybe we do go back to the paper calendar. So we should always look at how something is working for us. But I agree that this is very much part of our lives. And in many ways, the the screen apps that are available and the, the shows that are available and games that are available to our kids are much better than what we grew up with. I mean, I would play Minecraft over Ms. Pac-Man any day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean... Right, Miss Pac-Man, you just, there's really nothing to accomplish except eating those things and escaping the ghosts. But Minecraft, my God, it's amazing what my, what my, my daughter, my 13-year-old, is just obsessed with the stuff. And I thought it, when she started doing it that it was a complete waste of time. And then she took me on a tour of her creations, her worlds, and wow. I mean, it's just, it's just stunning what you can do in those things. And and there's there's creativity. It's art. I mean, it's you have to look at it from a different perspective. It's not just... A waste of time. And it's so great that she took you on a tour and that's we do want to go to our kids with that curiosity and say, Hey, what why are you so into this? But not like why are you so into this? What's wrong with you? But show me why you're so into this because I want to understand your world. And it doesn't mean I'm sure in your house you don't let your daughter play Minecraft to the exclusion of sleep, eating, <laughs> going to school and all the other things in her life. But I think you can appreciate 
the skills that she's building, the creativity, the ways that maybe nurturing some of her friendships more by having been given that backstage tour. Oh, absolutely. I think it gives me a, a much deeper appreciation of some of the things because, I mean, some the other stuff that she likes is, is screen-related as well. I mean, the games, but there's also she became obsessed over the summer with 3D printing, and that requires a lot of screen work. You actually have to get on there and use a, a, a CAD type of type of program to design something and manipulate it and twist it around and figure out why it didn't work the first time and the second time. I mean, the, the tech, I mean I'm sounding like a, a crazy advocate for technology, but which I sort of am, but it's, uh, I mean, I think as, as parents, we need to understand exactly what you're saying, that there's, there's good stuff here, and, but it needs to be managed. Absolutely. But I mean, again, with 3D printing, I mean, there's so much envisioning and then also failure and frustration, delayed gratification, um, and learning to manage some of that visioning, delayed gratification and failure is great preparation for a lot of things, both on and off the screen, that will be really helpful to your daughter as she grows up. Now, you use a phrase, uh, digital natives and digital immigrants, which is a phrase I, I learned first when I was editing a book by Mark Prensky, and I saw him in, in the, uh, you mentioned him actually in the book, and I thought it was a great phrase way back then, and it, it continues, and what's interesting is that the, the digital natives of when I was editing that book and when Mark Prensky wrote the, his book in 2001 they're now digital immigrants, those kids. I mean, my, my older kids who are in their 20s, they can say, boy, I remember before we had touch screens. And that's, they're, they're just different than the 13-year-old. Sure, and the touch screens, I think, are so intuitive even for young kids. I mean, some of the research from David Kleeman and others that I cite in ScreenWise show that kids are creating content before they can read, which is really interesting because a keyboard... And, and, and programming languages were really inaccessible to the preliterate, but now you have things like Scratch Junior, which is a visual programming language for preschoolers, and you also have things like just most kids can take a selfie when they're three and kind of go through all, all your photos, reorganize your apps. So the touchscreen generation is absolutely taking off in fascinating ways, and that's the digital natives I'm referring to. Uh, a lot of the today's parents did grow up with at least mobile phones, and I forget that because I'm a slightly older parent, but you know, I spoke at my son's school a few months ago, and there are plenty of parents of kindergartners who are in their 20s at my son's school who absolutely grew up with a mobile phone. And so even my assumptions about the generation gap, I mean, all of, all of that is changing all of the time. So millennial parents now grew up maybe even with MySpace or some other social media account. So it's, it's all going to change yeah. quickly. But I think the way the ways that there there there's continues to be a gap not just in what we know but how we use it. An adult and a child will use Instagram in very different ways, or play a game and interact in that space, or use a Tumblr in different ways. So it's it's not even about the different tools or facility because plenty of adults have incredible facility with you know gaming and social media. But our our instincts are to use things differently than children and, and teenagers will, and we want to understand how our kids are using things and not assume that they will. So He's here's the same way we will. Here's the thing that that bothers me though, where I, I begin to see a problem, and I, I have been looking at a lot of research about kids, particularly young kids, and pediatricians are actually now finding that some very young kids are not developing hand-eye coordination the way that they used to, and in many cases, muscle tone is not developing the way that it used to, because kids are spending. I mean, little you know, infants nine months old and up are spending so much time on a screen they aren't actually picking up a real block 
and stacking it on top of another one. They're doing that by just dragging and dropping. And that seems to me to be a, a, a problem that could get really big. Yeah, I'd be interested to talk to some occupational therapists that work with toddlers and preschoolers about that and see, you know, because the other, the other big difference is preschool and kids who go to preschool tend to build with blocks and hold pencils and have markers. And unfortunately, at least here in the U.S., we don't have free universal preschool where every kid is getting access to that. So I would, I'm just curious about about that because kids also struggle with dragging and dropping. I mean, there are some things to do on a tablet that kids aren't so good at. And so we can, we can look at the data and think about that, but super interesting. If, if kids are losing muscle tone, then that might be something that would prompt parents to say, okay, I do want my kid to cut with scissors. You know, <laughs> I do want my kid to play with markers and build with blocks and Legos and pry them apart. So let, let me give them some practice with in the physical world. Now, you talked, Vora, about the need for assessing your own digital literacy. How do you do that? Well, you want to understand wh- what your own proclivities are. So if you know, for example, that you're an abstainer, if you're one of the few adults at this point who's not on Facebook, for example, and you have no social media at all, and your child approaches the age where he or she wants social media, I think you have to recognize that, yeah, you, you do actually have a knowledge gap and that your middle schooler wants Instagram and Snapchat and you you need some mentorship. You need yourself to learn a little bit about what the social media world is that your child wants to enter. Uh, And you can get that in a number of ways. You can decide, I still want to abstain. I'm not going to get an account, but I'm going to talk to the PR person at my work or a younger relative who's really into this stuff or someone else in my child's life. But you do need to assess where, where you're strong. Like I know, okay, my knowledge of social media is strong, but my knowledge of gaming is relatively weak. I didn't grow up as a gamer, and as I said, the games weren't as cool when I was a kid. I might have been a gamer if Minecraft had been around, but I wasn't a gamer. And I still haven't gotten as into games as a lot of my friends, and there's a gender component to that and also just maybe a personality component. So that's where, as my child gets more and more into games, I'm like, okay, that's an area I really need to strengthen my knowledge. I need to let him show me the games he's playing. I need to make sure that I'm working with him to curate age-appropriate games for him and that are good fits you know, for his frustration tolerance, those kinds of things. So I think it's it, it's good to assess where am I strong and where am I not so strong, and then how can I make sure I know enough to be there for my child in this space. Talking with Devorah Heitner, who is the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive, Survive, I'm sorry, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking to Devorah about some things like empathy and family life and growing up under the digital lens. I'm Armin Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Oh, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. As an alternative to recycling? Yeah, an alternative. So we, like, don't have to do it. Recycling. There are lots of planets. Finding one is just a matter of time. Many people say that recycling is pretty simple and convenient, a matter of keeping select items out of the trash. A lot simpler than finding a new planet, Tommy. Come on, there's a bunch of planets out there. Would you recycle on this new planet, Tommy, or just use it up and throw it away too? I, I really don't have a clue. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle. Unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy. Unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. 
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Devorah Heitner, who's the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Um, want to have you talk a little bit about, you've got a whole chapter on empathy, and that seems like an interesting it's an interesting thing. I mean, I know that that uh, Google, I think, or was it Twitter? I can't remember which one of them, Fa- Facebook or Twitter, was trying to come up with some log- some algorithms where they could predict mental health problems, particularly suicide, by looking at language. And it seems like, you know, we think of empathy as being something face-to-face. Are kids missing that? that I think pa- kids have tremendous desire to be a really good friend, and that's what I see when I work with kids at a lot of schools all over, and they want to do the right thing. They want to be a good friend. But one challenge with social media is it's a little bit easy to feel like we've been a good friend when we comment on someone's post or even like it. Or if our friend does cry out for help, like if you see a friend talking about or even taking a picture of a self-harm situation, for example, and sharing it maybe in a social network like Instagram, it's easy to feel like we've been a good friend if we just say, oh, honey, you're so beautiful. I love you so much. Please don't do that. But those are situations that are absolutely code red situations where if you're a kid and you see that, you need to get an adult and get some help and let an adult know that your friend is actively in trouble and posting about it. That, so I think we need to make that really clear for kids. Like, like if a friend is having a bad day posting on their, on their wall or you know, liking something or sending them a direct message that's encouraging with some emojis may, may well cheer them up. But if it's more than that, we need to kind of cut across that line. And, and especially kids need to know when is a situation dire enough that an adult needs to be sought out immediately. So, so that's, a, that's a tough one. It, with, yeah. with empathy, I really want kids to understand, though, who they're sharing with. Like if I'm on a group text and I'm talking negatively about someone and then I find out they're on the group text, you know, what can I do, right? I, I've suddenly violated, you know, th- that the, the kindness rule in my communication. And it's very easy to do that in a group text or even a, a, any kind of texting situation because we're so cut off from affect. We're so cut off from the recipient's emotions. And so we really need to remind kids and adults, frankly, that there's another person on the other end of that communication. And even if the person we're being maybe mean about isn't on that group text, someone's likely, we're talking about sixth and seventh graders here, they might show it to that person, right? Because people are kind of unkind and they enjoy a little drama. So we need to to think about that. And, And there's also just an etiquette component to empathy, which is if I text you and you don't respond... I shouldn't just text again and again and again. I should try to imagine your experience, which is that you might be sleeping or doing your homework or involved in a really deep discussion with your parents or outside shooting hoops in the driveway. You might not be sitting there by your phone. And so if I can remember that you're a human being and not just you know, a bot responding to me, then it, it helps me calm my own worry mm-hmm. that you're not responding because you don't want to be my friend anymore. Well, one thing I'm curious about is, how is it that kids <clears throat> who are untrained, excuse me, <clears throat> can have a sense from what they're reading on a screen about whether there is a problem? And I mean, I, I'm just sort of thinking of uh, my my 13 year old when she was, I guess, 11, had a kid in her class who committed suicide, 11 year old mm-hmm. girl, and she was showing me. My daughter was showing me some videos that this girl had made, and you know, I'm looking at these things, trying my very very best to identify something in there that would have been a red flag. And there was nothing. And then on the other hand, you've got kids who are saying, oh, I want to kill myself and I hate life. And and they aren't serious. And I mean, they're not going to do anything about it. So how do you 
get a kid to be able to identify these things in in writing uh, and when parents can't. Well, that, and, and it's not fair to expect 11-year-olds or any of us really, but especially children, 11-year-olds, to identify men- signs of, of mental health. I'm, I'm really talking about pretty clear, like, like again, a picture of someone self-harming would be okay, a big red okay. flag. But I, I agree with you that this, there's a very – social media is quite noisy, and a kid could be quoting song lyrics and sound horribly depressed but be having a great day and just love a really depressing lyric or a kid could be quite depressed and post something that we wouldn't understand. So, and many times we see images from people we barely know or we actually don't know at all because of the way social media works. So what do we do in that scenario? I, I, I think we can expect 11-year-olds to always know. I just think one thing we can say to our kids is, if something is concerning to you, please show it to me. Your friend isn't going to be in trouble. If, if, if you see something and you think someone might need help, please come to me or another adult. And just make that really clear. And in general, with social media and gaming, we want kids to know, even if they've broken our rules, like say they've gotten a Snapchat account, we told them they couldn't get one until they were 13, and they get one when they're 12, and then someone's harassing them in Snapchat or sending them pictures that make them uncomfortable or doing something like that, they can still come to us. We really need our kids to know that that we're in this world with them and we're supporting them, even if it's not our world. Like say we choose not to be on Snapchat, for example. That doesn't mean we can't help them if they run into a difficult situation. Let's talk about what's going on in school. <clears throat> I remember one of the things when I was working with Mark Prensky was he was talking about how he expected a lot more apps and games to be showing up in school as part of classroom education. It seems like that hasn't happened as much. I mean, there's a lot in my daughter's school, and they're pretty tech-savvy there, they're having them watch like CNN for kids and and doing doing things, but they're they're not really using the what technology has to offer as far as experimenting with different alter, you know different alternative ways to do things. I think so, we're at a very early stage, and school yeah. looks a lot like it did in the factory years and in the farming years. Still, yeah. I mean, we're still looking at school that's way behind where industry is and way be, you know in terms of innovation. And schools are trying, and I think they're they're very much trying to get devices to kids, which is you know, in and of itself kind of pointless, right? When getting getting the devices to kids is not the point, but then what we want is how can we innovate? How can we personalize learning? How can we turn kids into more content creators versus consumers? How can we get kids connected globally? And the gamification that you talk about is amazing. I mean, James G. and other, other folks have written about how wouldn't it be great if the cost of failure in school was lower, in fact, so that kids didn't perceive this huge risk in learning. And that's how it is in a game. Your, your character dies, and you continue at that level. And so there's a huge incentive to take risks and, a hu- and, and not this big disincentive, whereas in school, failure is still shaming. So, well, so what why, we want to do is make there, school though? more like games. Yeah. I, think we're, I think there's a lot of fear of innovation in schools. I think parents uh, sometimes are fearful of schools that don't look like the schools that we attended. I think that educators aren't being educated. I mean, there's this whole testing, this huge emphasis on testing and, and data um, certainly is a huge disincentive. I mean, educators are not being incentivized to risk, right, <laughs> take risks. Right. It's absolutely the opposite. And you have some other big problems. Well, there's the, the kiss of death phrase, which is evidence-based. I mean, which is a wonderful thing in many cases, but it also it really totally undermines any, as you're saying, uh, any incentive for innovation. Because if you have to have three years' worth of data, by the time you get to the end of it, the thing is outdated. And I think we're not teaching kids how to 
fail and how to, for example, collaboration becomes much easier, you know, in a Google-enabled world where I can work on a Google Doc with you. But, you know, I'm 41 and I've, I've written three books and I've done a lot of collaborative and, and individual projects and I can tell you that collaborating, like my, my last book was a curriculum which I collaborated on, but you have to figure out how you're going to collaborate. You know, do you, am I doing an A-B collaboration where you work on this part and I work on that part? Are we going to work where I write a draft and then you edit the draft and add to it? Are we going to sit down together in a room and make something happen together at the same time? These are all different modes of collaboration. And when a child's teacher, you know, sends them home with a doc and says, okay, you four collaborate, <laughs> we, we actually need to try methods. And that's one of the things I learned way back in art school where I was sort of taught to be an auteur and the more industry-oriented film school down the street was actually teaching people roles and how to collaborate and when I actually had went to make my first film out of college, I wanted to work with those people from the industry school because they knew how to work together. Hmm. So where do we go from here? Not in education, but just generally speaking. What do you expect to be the next big innovation in in screens or technology for kids? That's a great question. I mean, we really want to, Marina Bears talks about playgrounds versus play pens, which I cite in the book. And I think we want to look for apps for kids that are more like playgrounds. As parents, we really want to mentor more than we just monitor. We don't want to just track and spy on our kids and see all the sites they're visiting. We want to talk to our kids about what do you think we should do about the fact that there are these sites that are negative, that are not positive for kids. Let them come up with solutions. I met some kids in, here in Illinois who had come up with a, a curated site of clean Minecraft videos for younger kids because they knew that younger players were sometimes forbidden to look at YouTube videos, which is a huge way that Minecraft community you know, teaches itself. And because of the language and other negative things that were happening in some of those videos. And so they curated a solution. So that's what I want to see. I want to see kids looking at some of the challenges, whether it's texting impatience and people texting each other a million times, whether it's people being rude in, in chats because they're anonymous, and saying, okay, this is the solution. This is how we can make the Internet more civil. This is how we can make technology still encourage motor skills in young kids. What can we do on a tablet that would, that would be motor-oriented? Um, so I, wa I want to see us co-creating solutions because the kids I work with are incredibly creative. So I'm, I'm not concerned about the future at all. I'm excited about the future in terms of kids and tech, but I think we need to involve them yeah. in creating some of these solutions. Excellent. Devorah Heitner, the author of ScreenWise, Helping Kids Thrive and Survive in Their Digital World. Thanks very much for joining us. And the website, by the way, is RaisingDigitalNatives.com, right? Yes. Thank you okay. so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.